Hello and welcome to the Being Berlin podcast brought to you by Bands. I'm your host, Mac Matan, Canadian writer and Berlin resident who wants to share a piece of Berlin through recorded conversations. Whether it's the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. Thank you for tuning in. But I think this place you said is super close to where you live. Yeah, it really is. So okay. thank you for no accommodating me. <laughs> so how are you? Good. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's been a busy few weeks. So thank you for uh, accommodating me this thank, week rather thank than you for last coming. week. Maybe you want to come a little bit closer oh, sorry. because we want to make sure we catch your beautiful voice. Yeah, we met last month. We met last month. Already? Was it? Already? Yeah, oh. I know. Yeah. Have you heard it all from uh, Lean or Olaf? A little bit. A little bit. I saw some photos of where they've moved to. Really? And it was, well, it was covered in about four feet of snow oh. when they got there, which I think was hard. But then Olaf posted something on Instagram and it seemed like they're having a great time now. So they just had to get into the groove. Uh, yeah. Live in Berlin and having a good time. Leaving Berlin, and they're like such the quintessential couple, Berlin couple for oh, me. I met so them. Much. I don't even remember if I told you, but I'll tell the story again. Um, I met Lean and Olaf the very first time I visited Berlin. I couch surfed with them because I was like yes. flat broke, and I was like not wanting to admit that to people. But obviously, if you're couch surfing, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> you d- you're doing it to make friends. That's yeah, it. That's, that's the I only said. reason. That's what I said. And I was like so transparent that that was so not the reason but they ended up like being really lovely people and when I moved to Berlin I thought I would have loads of time to spend with them and then just one day like yeah we're moving and I was like crestfallen yeah but also uh, I think they're gonna have an amazing time they will wherever they you are. know a uh, few people from my Airbnb time contacted me recently and asked if I'm still like renting my room out yeah Just ask, you know, it's like you probably don't remember us, but we were like five years ago at your place and we're coming to Berlin and we're asking if like, so I told him, yeah, you can come. Oh, wow. That's funny. nice. That's, yeah. that's how I know um, Avisar, who's my Airbnb host. Oh, that you, I think you also told, I was thinking there was another sleeping on a couch or in a spare room connection in this room. Yeah. It was that not was a it. couch. It was a very beautiful <laughs> room <laughs> with a beautiful bed. And, you know, I paid, Five star reviews. I paid money for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my finances were improved by that point. Okay, first question I want to ask you is like, why people hate lawyers? <laughs> is this coming from a from fellow from, former? Yeah. Why do people hate lawyers? I think it's the same reason they hate politicians. Um, do they? Hate, people hate politicians. Yeah. yeah. You think so? Yeah. I mean, in the States, people admiring, uh, you know, like politi- uh, AOC and that is super. Biden. I think that's like the vocal minority, though. You think so? Yeah. I think your average person, and not normal, average, um, you know, has this healthy skepticism of politicians. I think it's the same with lawyers because... People don't really understand what they do day to day. Like, mm-hmm. what, do, what does a lawyer sit there doing every day? You think of them in court, you know, arguing a case, and that's kind of all you know of them mm-hmm. from TV. And then also, I think because you need to go to lawyers at some of the hardest times of your life. Or, yeah, but nobody hates doctors, and it's the same, I think. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. I think because doctors also take care of us, mm. you know, they... They do lots of 
positive things that you can see with your health. I think lawyers do positive things, but I also just think that there's a bad rap because most of the time they're, you know, defending you when you've done something wrong and you're pretty stressed out or when you're having to sue someone. And you also don't put money in a doctor's hand, right? Like you, you're, you're. Depends which country. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. well, in Canada, you don't, you don't. You, like Australia. I guess, and, and like, I pay money to my insurance here. You know, your doctor, um, and doctors will see, even in America, doctors will see you if you have no money. It's just, it's right. like, then you get a bill after, but there's no actual like, hi, here's the invoice, like pay me. But like, you definitely have to give uh, money to a lawyer. But I also, like, I've, ne- I've never like hated lawyers. I think, I think people get upset maybe with the cut that lawyers get if there is a settlement, you know, they obviously get either like 30 to 50% depending on whatever. And like, it, that's like a big chunk of money. And Huge. people are like, 50%. I think in some places it can be up to 50%. Um, and I mean, people think that that's not fair. But I also say, like, well, you wouldn't have gotten anything <laughs> for the lawyers. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I guess, like, people don't hate public defenders. Mm. And so I think to your point, you know, because they're doing it either for very little money or yeah. they get paid indirectly. Yeah. And or maybe so, just people don't know, not, not aware of their existence, actually. Of public oh, defenders. Yeah. Maybe not, <laughs> unless you've had a run-in with the law. In which case you do. So you're still practicing law now? No. No. Goodness, no. No, okay. I'm a I'm a recovering, a recovered lawyer. Okay. Yeah. When like when full did respect you stop? to lawyers. When did I stop? Yeah. Uh when I moved to Berlin. Oh, so moving to Berlin was one of the reasons. Okay. Yeah. And you knew that before you moved here. That I wouldn't be a yeah, lawyer anymore? Yeah. yeah. That's and? kinda why I, I I left, why mm-hmm. I came here. Oh. In order to stop being a lawyer. Really? Yeah. What kind I of lawyer were you? I was in commercial litigation. I was. I would say usually the same reason. I say if people ask me, I say I just wanted to stop being a lawyer. If I wanted to stay being a lawyer, I would stay in Israel, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, I knew I wouldn't be able to be a lawyer in mm-hmm. Germany because it's a completely different system. Yeah. So I, I needed a break. And when was that? 2000 and oh, I'm so bad with dates. 11? But you're oh. so young. This is 2012. You, like, did you become a lawyer like? 16 like (laughs) i'm a prodigy no um no i'm like you know nearing 40 so i don't know i'm really bad at guessing age i just really i'm not good at that but i think so basically you're complimenting that's what you're saying but well i well you're still a young woman and i mean even if like you could have told me whatever your age is you just look quite young Mm. but um i think yeah so you came here in 2011 which was Oh, 12 years. Yeah, 12 yeah. years. 12 years ago. Yeah, but I only practiced as a lawyer for like two and a half years. Mm. So you so. knew quickly that it was oh, not yeah. your thing. Oh, yes. And I'm so glad I tried it. I'm glad I, because a lot of people will do a law degree, which is a, you know, it's good to have under your belt, but mm-hmm. then not practice because they already know. I kind of already knew, but I wanted to give it a, give it a shot. And I obviously could have done something much less outrageous than commercial litigation, but, um, that's well, what I well, fell into. Well, like what? Of, oh, yeah. yeah. I like don't what? know. You know, like public defenders mm-hmm. or going into human rights law or environmental law where you mm-hmm. can kind of feel like you're doing something really great for the world or for the planet. Well, whereas, you were a human rights lawyer, Abby yes. There you go. Yeah. I but you, you also left the profession. Yeah, I also <laughs> left the profession. I did it for five, for five years almost, yeah. I, I just didn't like being a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So. What the, which part? The arguing, the... The arguing time six minute time increments we don't have that but oh. i mean but i think everything to do with that uh, from the writing 
telephone calls. Mm. I guess I always had this kind of like uh, impostural syndrome, I guess it's called. Yeah, so I felt like I'm acting, you know, I never, yeah. be- I never believed myself and uh, it felt ridiculous. You know, I was feeling like I was putting up an act yeah. and I was talking to people. I so agree. I left. Yeah. Yeah. That was a huge part. That I had, you have to, in my case, I had to pretend that I cared that this one really big iron ore smelter plant was going to beat this other, you know, I don't know, steel plant in this commercial litigation. And I genuinely didn't give a shit. But you have to pretend like you do. Yeah. But I had one case where I had to defend um, a comedian who was being sued for not being funny enough. And in no. that case, that was my favorite case. Really? Yeah. Crazy. Who sued them? Yeah. Um, so he was hired by a, um, I think it was either a cruise ship or some other sort of hotel resort type thing to be an act, you know, to be one of their performers. Okay. And and I mean, it was a re- they lost obviously because it was a stupid argument. Yeah. But um, how did they judge the unfunniness? Well, they said that he'd breached the contract, and that part of the contract was to be a comedian that was funny, and that he hadn't been funny, and so he'd breached the contract. I, it's so yeah, purely for damages. Uh, did they what? Sorry? They sued him for damages. Did we? No, no. I used to the. Like, no, he no, was getting sued. He was fighting off. Okay. No, but he did make his next kind of comedy tour about the wow. lawsuit. Yeah. So that, that was, was like a career boon for him. Yeah, wow. yeah exactly. <laughs> it was great material, I think. Wow. Okay. But so you la- you leave Australia, you come here, and I I know this. So I don't think Abby Sar knows this. You come here and you and you do what as your first or one of your early gigs? I become a tour guide. Which I think is yeah. so cool, which is what Lean did. Lean was yeah. doing that. And I think yeah. that's that's how, how I know Lean. Mm. Yes. And yeah, I I think the walking tours of Berlin, I don't know. For me, even the bus tours, like whenever I go to a new city, I love going on tours and I love the city the bus the city bus tours because you get so much information and you hop off and you hop on and I think people look down on them, but I think they're really great. But the walking tours are also amazing. They're much more rigorous. Like like you are like gonna be walking the whole day, but how did you like get into that and what was it like for you? I got into it because I'd been on a walking tour as a tourist in Berlin the first time I came here and I loved it. I thought it was so, I mean, the the tour guide who then was still here when I moved here and became a tour guide, um, he was just really funny and it was really interesting and I just thought that seems pretty cool. And so I couldn't speak any German and I didn't want anything resembling like a serious adult job because that's exactly why I was leaving Australia. Um, so I applied to be a tour guide. And, I, and I've also been really interested in history. Like I, I started a master's in history mm. when I got to Berlin as well because I thought this was like my path. Um, I didn't pursue it though because I don't know why, but it's interesting, but it's more of a hobby. And so, yeah, I got a job as a tour guide at a time when I don't know, there was this really hilarious rivalry between all the different tour companies in Berlin. And so I sort of joined one of the clans and then, you know, I mean, all the tour guides were friends with each other, but then there'd be these weird like rivalries between certain companies and certain tour guides and you'd be out in the streets and you'd see someone in like a different colored t-shirt and it was just kind of funny. I mean, for me, I'd be like, oh, hey, yeah, this is great. But, you know, other tour guides wouldn't sort of talk to us because we were the, we were kind of the bad guys. We were the big, 
company that no okay, one likes. You're back to the commercial yeah. corporate life. Okay. From representing exactly. to working yeah. for. And, okay, so and I loved it. Like we were saying, you know, lawyers and doctors meet people on a really unhappy days. Tour guys meet people on a really happy days. Like yeah. everyone's in a good mood. It just must be so uplifting every time. Not to say every tour is going to be like fantastic, but I think like generally it's really positive because everyone's traveling and happy. You'd think so. <laughs> <laughs> you would really think that. But <laughs> yeah, mostly. But sometimes you get people and you just... You would say it. It depends what what part of the tour it was because we worked for tips. So sometimes I would say it right at the end. But it's like, you're on holiday, you know, enjoy yeah. yourself. Come on. Um, but, yeah, most of the time people were super excited to be in Berlin and really interested in the history and all the bits about it. And it was just cool to know all this stuff about this place and for people to be so interested in it. That might be why you stopped your your history masters because you were kind of already doing like a history course like being a tour guide yeah I guess so and I mean maybe I am just like a capitalist horrible person but I was like I don't know how I'm gonna make money in history you know there's no future in history as the wow. stupid joke is no future in history I, like <laughs> I didn't make that up yeah okay. sadly okay. so did you have like people arguing in front of you or like uh, creating drama crying fighting uh, crying <laughs> Not quite so extreme. Just complaining, I would say. Oh, I see. You know that you can. Can you already recognize like a certain like typecast of you know the one who always asks questions, the one that tries to be funny. The... Yeah, it it often I hate to say went down kind of uh, age lines okay. and nationality. Mm. And you know who were some of the most difficult. Israel. Yes, Israelis. Australian. No, like, Australians will believe oh, anything. Yeah. And, you know, as, as long as they're not dressed in a T-shirt when it's minus 10, they're easy, easy peasy. But no, Israelis are always the hardest work. But I, I don't know, I managed to win them over most of the time. Wow. And then they loved me and I loved them and it was great. But were they, just they made like, you work for were it. Were they just like the asking too many questions or...? Very skeptical, very critical, weren't afraid to talk right over the top of you, asked a lot of questions. And if you didn't know the answer, then, you know, you really had a, had a hard time. Um, at first, when I first started guiding, they kind of hated my accent as well, which I found really funny because I think you must be more used to America. A, yeah, yeah, U.S. English. So they'd often not have any idea what I was talking about. Um, Would you comment about that? Yeah. Oh, God, Yeah. <laughs> They would, they like would, what? like, what, what is this word that you keep saying? We don't understand what that is. I was like, what, what word? I think it was war, the word war. But I, t to be fair to them, I think when I first started guiding, I would say war because in Australia, we don't really say ours I so much. So I had to change. I changed, I changed how I said the word so that they could understand. So you had a lot of Israelis coming to in your stores? Yeah. Because they have like tours in Hebrew, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, not with our company. And ours mm. was kind of the bigger, more well-known one, I guess. And I it had more tour guides so they could more easily get a tour, I, I think. Yeah. Um, so, like, but you're I'm sorry. trying to think back to my tour. My tour was really great because we like, it was at the Brandenburg Gate, but she t like, Lean told me, yeah, we're going to meet at the Starbucks. And I was like, yeah, I'll be able to find that, no problem. <laughs> Um, not the giant landmark, but the the Starbucks. Oh, I'll yeah. be able to locate, no problem. Yes, yeah. I think I think tour guiding is a really rigorous job, and Lean did a really good. Like she took it so seriously. She did such a good job. I, I could tell 
I could, even though it was the only time I'd done it, I could tell that she was like trying to make it really interesting for people. And that means it just requires so much energy each time you have like a new cohort of people. They've, yeah. n- they've never heard any of this before. This is your millionth time saying it. And then being able to say it with like energy and pizzazz is not easy. So like, I think the job's tough. I agree. I think it's a really hard job. I And I had to give it up because it was, it, go, it just got too hard for me. I couldn't I turn up and perform. You know? Yeah. 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 I mean, you're on stage. Totally. It's like, day think in, day about, out. Uh, Billie Eilish, for example. Yeah, Every he loves, concert, he's, he I loves love Billie Eilish. Eilish yeah. He's like a little, like, it's a good it's, comparison. I'm, 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 I'm interested in, like, why you love her so much, because she's, like, a teen idol. Really? Not that, <laughs> I mean, her I'm, fans. I, first of all, I'm a teen. I'm a teen. <laughs> I'm a teen. I don't know. She's, I think she's just very talented. Uh, like, something, I mean, come on. She's I think really she's, touched, no, she is so talented. She she's so talented. Her, yeah, Daph and I would totally agree with that. You know, she's very, like she's really a grown up. Yeah, that's true. And it was interesting to see her journey because she got like she matured, you know, on her YouTube. Very eyes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what's like uh, we talked about it. I think with like this interview with Creep <laughs> from on Netflix. You know, when he was interviewing like the guy from. Oh yeah, David yeah. Letterman. Yes, that was yeah. We're not gonna go back that. Why are you scrolling there? Uh, you wanted to, to ask her about uh, I'm, I'm, what, I'm what's, the, what's the name of this uh, organization, actually? I didn't get it. Because I started to read and then I realized it says something, yeah, better leaders. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I was just trying to yeah. like act, be prepared for when we got to that part of the I conversation. But we can like head <laughs> there sorry, now that you brought it up. <laughs> so, Kim, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about your work at the party and I'm, I'm proud of that, actually. But... Um, I did get to talk to you afterward and I found out you have a really interesting job with a really cool organization. And if you could introduce that, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it is a cool organization. Um, So it's the Apolitical Foundation. Um, And our, I guess our corporate tagline or our mission is that we cultivate trusted, ethical and courageous politicians. But what that really means is uh, we're working to get new more diverse, better prepared people to go into politics and to be politicians um, on the one hand. And on the other hand, trying to better support the people who are already in politics because like lawyers, they're often really derided and hated, but also shockingly really underprepared for the incredibly important job that they do, which affects all of our lives in many, many different ways, day in, day out. So um, yeah, we're sort of quite a optimistic, hopeful organization that if you can get more people who just know who they are, know their values, know how to make policy to go into politics, you'll have really different outcomes in democracies. I think so. before I forget, I just want to touch on the hopeful part. And I know that like we'll talk about it more um, at length in a bit. But I think the hopefulness, I reflected on that a bit because I was thinking back to all the teachers that I've like really loved and they all always instilled a sense of like hopefulness and like warmth. And I felt like that sense of safety. And Mm. I think because the world as it is right now, aside from the polarization, I don't feel like that hope reverberating in a lot of places. And it just it just makes you feel like, well, who's who's my leader? Who's the person that's going to come? comfort me and it's just that feeling and then reading and learning about your organization and the fact that hope is such like a central tenant of it I 
I realize how lacking it is and how but how necessary it is as a human being to have that like that's for in so many ways it's almost like when you're a child and you need a like a parent figure like or a big brother yeah. or big sister figure like someone to make you feel okay about the future it's so true and i think covid was a really good example of that where the countries where you had politicians who were strong and clear and showed that they cared and came out and sort of took care of their population, the the people in those countries just felt safer, even though maybe their situation was was the same or worse than in other places. Um, yeah, it's Why? kind of like a parent or a, or a doctor, you know, you want them to look after you. But don't you think like the problem is the fact that we are looking for those people instead of, I don't know, maybe in ourselves in a, in a way? So I think like my my theory is that we do search for it in ourselves and would because outwardly there might not be a lot of examples for it we do a lot of self-talk and you know when we lay our our heads in, on the pillow at night and we're reassuring ourselves but there's only so much you can do for yourself because you mm. still have to go out there and be in the world and you interact with people like like we're not islands we like we are with people all day every day and you this episode is brought to you by bands Bands is a rock band program for hobbyist musicians. If you have a flair for music and have always wanted to join a rock band as a hobbyist, Bands is the program for you. Visit bandsberlin.com and register to get started. You'll have an audition with a musical mentor, and then you'll be placed in a group of fellow hobbyist musicians to meet up once a week for rehearsals. Once again, that's bandsberlin.com. Your mind needs reassurance from outside of yourself. And I think it's totally natural to look for that. Okay. I mean, for me, I, I'm, I'm struggling with this idea. Like to be, for the fact that we are, I don't know, I mean, first of all, they always disappoint us. Secondly, I mean, we always tend to find somebody and then we think he's perfect or she is perfect, you know? Uh, for some reason, we don't look at them as human beings. I mean, yeah. But that that thing that you just said, when yeah. you find a politician that you really like, the, the AOCs, like, and also like in Canada, but before now he's kind of, become a lot more disliked but in the early days trudeau was like a mm. legend and the reason people like them is it's something new and it's instilling hope and that's what i've like mm -hmm. realized people really like that but I, i'd like to hear a little bit more about it from from kim so you join this organization a political foundation and you have this really cool thing called uh political leadership incubators mm. so these this is like what is that um, so you can explain to the audience because I wanted to talk sure. about that. Yeah. Uh, so we actually inadvertently created this term for a whole bunch of organizations around the world. I, I mean, I say inadvertently. We wrote a report that we released last year that was based on this research that we did of trying to learn about the field that we were working in because we didn't want to recreate the wheel. We didn't want to do things that other people had tried and maybe failed at. You know, we didn't want to repeat these mistakes. So we did a research report where we went out and looked at all of these other organizations working on political leadership in some way. So training, for example, training women um, to become political leaders in certain places or just young people, you know, recruiting them, training them and helping them to go into politics. And we found a whole bunch around the world, about 400 organizations. And then we thought, you know, it's actually way more than just training. They're not just getting people and training them and churning them out. What's really important is kind of the selection. So thinking about who we are actually sending off into politics um, and their 
values and mindsets and those things. It's also training, but it's also supporting them and helping them afterwards as well, because being a politician is super hard and you don't want to just send people off into systems that are very broken often. Mm -hmm. Uh, You need to support them, whether that's with mentoring or, you know, networking, whatever it might be, helping them to get into a party, different things in different places. So we thought of that as this kind of incubation process. You know, you're incubating this future ethical political leader. So then we came up with political leadership incubators. So it kind of encompasses these organizations that work in outside politics, but with the political system. So they they helped people who wouldn't normally go into politics, who'd maybe be scared or really skeptical and for a very good reason about politics to kind of get into the system. And often it's people, you know, like activists. So helping them to sort of change that right. activist community building power that they have into political power, which is huge and necessary to make change, mm-hmm. we think, at kind of big scale uh, levels. So, well, just one question: like, wh- which markets are you targeting? In, in a sense, I mean, like, which countries? The world. Yeah. The world in general. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, we have our own network or our own um, group of academies, mm-hmm. which are these political leadership incubators. Um, they there are seven at the moment, and they work in twenty five countries around the world. Mm. So. From Southern Africa mm. to Sweden, uh, we have academies in Portugal, in Paraguay, Peru, uh, the Caucasus, and mm-hmm. also Germany, Austria, or the Dach region, which is more than Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. I've only just learned in the last few days. The what uh, region? Dach. Dach. Yeah. D- Germany, D- Australia. Germany, Australia, Austria. Austria. Yeah. Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Well, okay. yeah, I learned something. Okay, cool. But but like those leaders are uh, incubated for their own countries, I guess. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and maybe not even national level. More, oh. it could be like local, local. level, state oh. level. But then there's all. We now have a network called the Political Leadership Incubator Network, which is about sixty organizations <laughs> that are not our apolitical branded and affiliated academies. They're doing their own thing. And they do that. And but do you, don't you think that, uh, I think maybe, uh, how should I put it, like local politicians, I mean, coming from the outside, how can you help like a local person, you know, um, how differently? I think it's totally different, no? For sure. So we don't is the answer. I mean, we have academies and we have a global network, but they're all run by local mm. political entrepreneurs, basically, who come to us to say, something needs to be done or, you know, I I feel like we could do more in our country or our state or city or cities. Um, And when they come to you, what is it, what are some of the concerns that they raise about why it's so important for them to start this? Polarization comes up as a really big one um, because it's everywhere. I mean, it's just different degrees in different places, but that politics is becoming so polarized and so unrepresentative that yeah. you know it's it's very um what's the adage and pale male and stale so it's you know a bunch of middle-aged white men in a lot of cases or majoritarian in a lot of countries and so they want more representative politics because people are losing hope um and the more you can see yourself in the people who are leading you i think the more hope you have 
And those people make better decisions because they're representing their communities. Mm -hmm. And so they basically have the back of their communities. So So representation, polarization, um, and almost desperation would be the third one in that, you know, we've tried all these other things and things aren't changing. And this is one area that maybe hasn't been really thought about as much or considered as much as, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science, but what about if we just had better politicians or if the politicians that were there had better skills or Mm -hmm. better ideas or better support, what would the outcome be? What would the difference be? Yeah, because I think, uh, well, I'll briefly say, I think with politicians in many ways, yeah, their job is so important um, and they deserve to be scrutinized for the work that they're doing. But I think that scrutiny definitely veers toward like open disrespect and like sometimes hate the way people speak about politicians. So I think a lot of people shy away from entering it as a profession because they just see the way politicians are treated and possibly the way they've spoken about politicians. It's not like a really attractive job. No. And it's always, yeah, corrupted. I think that's, yeah, that's a stereotype. It's not always corrupt. I mean, yeah. Well, and and I think this goes back to like why people dislike politicians and why people criticize politicians. I mean, so much of it is to do with media and media coverage of it. But, you know, our kind of, the most primitive parts of our brain are conditioned to think about the negative and the threats. You know, that's what we, we grab onto. And that's why, you know, in the media, there's always these kind of sensationalist stories. It's not as exciting and it doesn't stick in our brains as much to hear that, you know, this politician has been doing their job really well, mm-hmm. that they've been doing what they're supposed to do. That just doesn't get as much airtime. And we don't hold that in our in our brains as much as that politician that was corrupt yeah, or that politician that did this bad thing. I mean, I totally agree. But on the other hand, the, uh, like the incentive to succeed in politics is to be in the media and then it kind of like creates, I don't know, you know, the sensation and like being on the news. I don't think that's necessarily true either. I mean, there's, there's quite a few studies that have been done in different places around the world that look at the incentives for people going into politics and why they do it. And more often than not, the people are doing it because they have this sense of service and that they mm-hmm. want to serve their communities and they have a certain topic maybe that they want to see change in or they just want to represent and stand up and and kind of be that person that helps people so there's a lot of intrinsic uh, motivation for politicians whether or not that stays is another question Mm -hmm. and we and I think it's kind of fascinating to think what power does to people's brains and how that changes them but that's often the reason that people go in and it and it is often the reason that they stay as well was this uh studied what power does to people's brain yeah there are some studies around um, the impact of political power specifically on um, certain personality traits okay. and um, also also I, I mean it's no I mean how I don't know how you do that <laughs> on mice oh yeah oh that's like elect yes. a certain mouse exactly. and then exactly. see what happens <laughs> to their, their brain <laughs> put them in front of press yeah. conferences every day yeah on, on a podium you know yeah okay that could be a good it no i'm just good. curious to see like to, if you have like any yeah there d- are, yeah there are i mean and and this is something i'm working on at the moment is um the impact of the impact on mental well-being generally mm-hmm. for people in politics so and vice versa you know their mental well-being how it affects 
how well they do their job, but also how being a politician impacts your well-being. So how does being a politician or what what are some of the ways being a politician affects mental uh, well-being? Mostly from what we're seeing, it's pretty negative in that being a politician decreases your well-being often. Um, And that's for a variety of reasons. And it depends, you know, I think, um, for example, women of color in the US who are in national or state governments have much bigger burdens on them than, again, I I don't like to pick on them, but a a white middle-aged man who's, you know, a local councillor in Australia, for example, Um, you know, where you're working crazy hours. I mean, politicians work a lot um, more than most other professions, really high stakes decisions. So you're you're kind of stressed and having to make decisions on the fly really quickly without necessarily the right training. So you've got this imposter syndrome. A lot of politicians actually have that where they think, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing, but everyone just assumes that I do or expects that I should know what I'm doing. You know, I get elected and then all of a sudden I'm supposed to be the master of everything that I'm... It's so weird to hear this kind of thing because uh, eventually I forget, I tend to forget that they're humans, you know? Yeah, that's so true. People do and they... They are, but there's also been these studies where what we expect politicians to be like us. You know, we want someone that we could go and have a beer with, but we want them to be better versions of us mm-hmm. at the same time. And how do you main, how do you maintain that? How do you tread that line of being relatable and like everyone else, but also better than everyone else? Yeah, it's pretty better hard. How more ethical, smarter have more resilience, be able to work longer hours. Good looking? Sure, yeah. Oh, no, definitely better looking. I think there's also something about symmetry of faces and politicians. I don't know. (laughs) And also comb over, you know? (laughs) The hairstyle, better hair. (laughs) I mean, you're not allowed to be bold when you're uh, like a politician. You know know that like Israel Prime Minister, he's like partially... I'm afraid that if I say it, like people wait for me outside. But I mean, he has like a comb. He over, does, yeah, 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 yeah which he looks, does. I feel like there's I, been I, quite a lot of comb overs in politics, though. Yeah, but, but probably because you can't be bald. Why? Yeah, what? I don't know. I quite like a bald head. I'm trying to think of a bald. I mean, Biden certainly has lost most of his hair, but he's also like really, a really old. old. Yeah. Um, yeah. A bald politician. That's... Why do you think about that? They I all kind of have, have an... iconic hair. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly. thinking of, of like Boris Johnson, of Trudeau, oh, yeah. Macron, but Trudeau is Trump. Okay. Trudeau's almost 50. Trump is a comb over. Tru- but Trudeau's like in his 50s now. Really? Yeah, he just looks like really young. It's oh also because he's he just is super fit and he's always running around town. I've seen mm. him so many times on jogs. Yeah, no, he is. He's really he, like he's like where like that's his thing. Good on jogging. Him. Um, you need to do it. Yeah, I think definitely. I think you get really invested in a politician in a lo- in a lo- you get invested in a local politician, and then I think what happens is you don't hear about them. Because you don't, you were not keeping up with the day to day politics. Because that's what we've elected the politicians to do. You're going to handle the day to day stuff, and yeah. we're going to get the reviews. You know, whenever it is in the news or through whatever. And I just think there's also been a breakdown in society where we actually don't know what's being legislated, and it's not even necessarily that it's hidden, but we just, how do we access that? Where do we get that information? And then people are like 
Yeah. I don't even have the mental space to deal with that. No. Like, that's why I've hired you. Go and do that. And then when something happens that people don't like, then it's like the claws and fangs come out. Yeah. That's so true. It's and I mean it people are busy, people have their own lives, people have so much to do. So yeah, it's hard to search out that information about oh, thanks. About what these people are actually doing once they get elected. Um and that's also I think a problem that politicians have to really deal with because and and I always think about the European Union and the European Parliament. It's I'm sorry to any MEPs that may or may not be listening to this, but like it's so boring. It's just mind-numbingly boring, but they do so much great stuff, but they don't sell it in a way that is in any way agreeable, interesting, that people care about. And, you know, it's it's kind of not the best ideas that that sort of win elections or that change the world. It's the best sold ideas and they don't sell it at all. So we're going back to the same point when you're saying you usually don't hear about people who are doing their job, you know? So basically they're doing their job and then you're they're kind of like required to also brand it. Yeah. Which is a little bit weird. Yeah. I think. But what yeah. I wanted to ask about is, okay, you incubate people before they become politicians. And you also said you do incubation of people who are politicians too. So I'm wondering what you said, You some of the issues that they deal with is polarization. Okay. If the topic is polarization, how mm. do they actually learn to deal with it? Mm. Yeah. So we, so our academies, which are, you know, these wonderful little independent entities around the world, they incubate these people. Um, and we help them to set up and run and we have a, you know, a lot of resources that they can make use of. So they're not having to do it all themselves essentially. But for current politicians, um, yeah, it's, it's I guess, a variety of different things. One of them that turns out to be really important is just connecting them um, with each other so that they can tell war stories, they can learn from each other's mistakes in kind of safe spaces so that they can be a little bit more vulnerable potentially or open about things that might not have worked or things that did work and what they learned from it and sort of speak as equals and have these kind of peer conversations. So that kind of peer-to-peer learning is super important. And then there's different training you can do. But on polarization, this is really fascinating and something that I've been looking at a lot in the last year or so is that it, it comes down to, first of all, being really self-aware and knowing what your own values are and how they're structured and your identities and how that makes you tick in that you will filter every piece of information through those values and how you structure them. You will surround yourself with certain people because of those values and you will listen to people and you'll disagree with people because of those values. And that someone with a different set of values or prioritization will do that in a really different way. And it doesn't mean that you're right and they're wrong or vice versa. It just means that you're different. And I think just having that understanding and that awareness to come at an issue or a topic to and realize that it's not just they're an idiot and I'm right or, oh God, maybe I've got no idea what I'm talking about and they're right. It's that you are different people with different values and they're really fundamental and core to who we are and hard to change and all these different things. And so for polarization, we've worked with people in the um, in the European Commission and they do a lot of work around how values and identities help to shape politics and help to shape polarization. So being aware of that, knowing your values, knowing what the values of the people that you're serving are and you can do 
lots of different things. There's surveys from around the world. There's like sentiment analysis of social media. So you can kind of a little bit creepily, I guess, um, scrape the internet to find out what words people use and that mm. indicates their values. But then it comes back to this branding. Then you can sort of think, okay, well, these are the values of the people I'm serving. Does this policy or does this initiative or this way that I'm talking serve those values and serve those people? And then, you know, the way that you sell a policy is you use the words that resonate with the values of the people you're, you're talking to. You're not changing what you're talking about. You're just changing the words you use. And that has been found to really reduce sort of polarized opinions because, mm-hmm. yeah, because you're you're not just saying you're an idiot, you're wrong. You're saying you're different to yeah. me and this is how you see this and this is how I see it, mm-hmm. but it, maybe it's the same thing. And just being aware that there are certain things where um, they're really kind of core and emotional for people. Um, you know, things like immigration or even climate change in a lot of places up until recently. Yeah, I mean, today everything is like in the core and very personal to people, you know, which is, yeah. Yeah, him and I had a discussion um, a while ago about how, I don't know, I'm on the fence about this. A lot of like the protest movements I'm seeing. First of all, I agree with po- protests so fundamentally mm-hmm. that like sometimes like I just I could be out on the streets all day. <laughs> like I, that's how much I believe in. But on the other hand, I just feel like it's not like it's not working, especially around climate change. It's it's it feels like maybe I haven't read enough literature yet. It just seems like I'm not seeing like any kind of like wheels of cha- wheels of change, and it's really frustrating me. And it's making me start to feel like hopeless. Yeah, about that particular topic. But I guess when you have these incubations and these academies and they, what I'm interested in is it's nonpartisan. Yeah. So like you, you you do make clear that you stay away from extremist ideology in either side of the spectrum, but it's still nonpartisan. So mm. people within, you know, the broad church of right and left politics might have very vastly different ideas about how to deal with ch- climate change, including if it even really exists. There's yeah. like, there may be politicians who come and think this is not even real. So like, how do you... Uh, reconcile that as an as an organization? Is it something that you mm. even, even want to broach? Because I think this episode is brought to you by Bands. Bands is a rock band program for hobbyist musicians. If you have a flair for music and have always wanted to join a rock band as a hobbyist, Bands is the program for you. Visit bandsberlin.com and register to get started. You'll have an audition with a musical mentor, and then you'll be placed in a group of fellow hobbyist musicians to meet up once a week for rehearsals. Once again, that's bandsberlin.com. Because there's so many problems uh, right now, maybe it's the focus is really just getting people in the room together. Exactly. Yeah. And that is actually a way to address polarization is to get people who might disagree together in a room and go through an experience together because then you have a common value or a common identity that they've worked on. Mm. And so in these incubators or the academies, they try really hard to get people from across the political spectrum, not the extremes once again. So yeah, I mean, you have to believe that climate change is a thing basically to join most of these organizations that we've come across and certainly to be part of our academies. That's just a line in the sand that we've drawn um, and you have to believe in in equity and equality as well. You know that's the kind of the the barriers to okay. our nonpartisanship. Okay. Um, and human rights. I mean, 
yeah, there's some fundamentals that it's like you can't can't go beyond this. Do you find that you mostly do attract people that are on the left side of the spectrum? Yeah, that okay. is unfortunately the bias that you have to then work against to get people who are more center center right to because I mean conservative values are often not interested in changing the system by their very nature. So then it becomes going back to this idea of like how you sell it or how you frame it. It's the same thing, but you it's very much framed in this idea of like learn how to be the best politician you can be. Learn how to get elected, keep getting elected and really do your job super well uh, as a politician, which kind of appeals to people from different sides of the spectrum. Um, but yeah, getting them all in the same room together, especially pairing up people that disagree maybe or from different political backgrounds um, and getting to go through I mean, our program's like seven to nine months long, so it's pretty in-depth. What getting... happens actually? I mean, like they meet every day? They, like, how does it go? It's usually a, a weekend, a month mm-hmm. in person or in person at the start and the finish and then online. And then they'll have different projects that they have to work on together. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of simulations. So they'll do a campaign simulation mm-hmm. or they'll do um, a negotiation simulation, which is around climate policy. Mm-hmm. Um, they go through and really try to unpick why they're doing this, why what's drawing them to this calling, um, which is, I think, quite revealing for a lot of people, but also to hear about other people's whys, especially, again, if you don't agree with them politically. It's interesting to th- sort of see that humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, they do then uh, learn about, you know, policymaking processes, so how to use science and evidence in policymaking, a lot of political communication stuff mm-hmm. as well, so how to then put it out into the world. Um, some of our academies do this where they, they require almost the people to do kind of a community project, whatever that might be, um, and then they learn about their own political systems, how it works in their context what the parties are, how you get into a party, the electoral system, because they're obviously different everywhere. And I think that's a huge barrier, especially for young people or people who aren't from kind of the narrow pipeline that often goes into politics is where the hell do you even begin? How do you even do it? I mean, sometimes you can be a community leader and someone might tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, why don't you run for office? But That doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. But if you can learn how the whole system works, that's hugely powerful knowledge, I think. So let's say someone's an activist and they have a bit of a following. They're very engaged in the community, but they haven't heard about Apolitical Foundation. How does Apolitical Foundation get to people's eyes and ears? We do podcasts <laughs> is one way. Um, but We have to get the word out, and part of that is is funding. So part of what we do at the Apolitical Foundation is we're working really hard to make the case that this work is important, and it's not just for us. It's for kind of all the organizations that do this work in order to get more money funding into the space and then in order to be able to use that money to run campaigns essentially around comms, PR, um, and just sort of help to change the narrative that, change is possible, there is this kind of option of hope and that these organizations actually exist around the world and are doing really cool things. There's a few organizations though, there's, a, there's one in Australia called Women for Election who do really cool um, social media campaigns. They sort of have really 
mastered that with a teeny tiny budget um, to get the word out. And they they just had a whole bunch of their graduates um, stand for election in recent elections in Australia. And they were on the national news. And so it's kind of starting to happen, but it's mostly resource limited. Mm -hmm. But I think there's more and more organizations now that are just getting their head around the fact that we need to get out there and be really public. And so for us with our report, for example, that we put out last year, we really try to put front and center all the different organizations doing it. And we release lists every year of the organizations that are doing it. And through our networks, trying to, to get the word out that these are things that are going on. But on the grounds, like, for example, our academy in Portugal, um, it does a really good job of engaging um, kind of youth groups, community groups, volunteer networks to get the word out that this is a thing that they can try and they can do. Um, in the DACH, so the German-Austrian-Swiss um, Academy, they're actually going to be working with um, Volkshochschule mm -hmm. to sort of get the word out but also mm -hmm. to run some of the training through there. So it's going to be super accessible to mm -hmm. so many people. Um, so there's different ways and means that that people do it. In our Southern Africa Academy, they just have a great social media presence and it's sort of word of mouth. So there's different ways and means, but it's hard. I have some informative questions. So this is an American organization, right? No. No. So? We are based in Germany. And ah, okay. So also London. Germany, what's it? Huh? I mean, we have an entity in the UK and an entity in Germany. Okay, so... But an American founder. Ah, we have, okay. yeah. Okay. Our, one of oh, the yeah. founders is American, and okay. she's our CEO. And why... She's awesome. Why in Berlin? Because uh, we're here. My, oh. C my CEO and I lived here, so... Ah, so she's also here. She's also here, ah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. So Since we're here. She's still here? She's still here. I see. How big is this? Like, how many people are working in this? Uh... We're really small. We only have like ten people mm -hmm. in our, yeah, in our Berlin team. And who got this report? Like, who did you send it to? As many people as we could, I guess. Everyone we spoke to mm -hmm. for it, all the organizations that we identified. So we sent it to the four hundred and twenty something that we mm -hmm. identified. Um, all the funders that we could possibly think mm -hmm. of. We have a sister organization that's called Just A Political, um, mm -hmm. which is based in London that has a really big network. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, of about 170,000 members oh. from, no, I think it's 190,000 members now in 170 countries from around the world. So it went out there. Mm -hmm. And my Lisa, our CEO, is just a, a bit of a um, mover and shaker in the world and mm -hmm. she has also got really big connection a uh, big network of connections um so we all shared it as far and wide as we possibly could mm -hmm. in lots of different ways do you have anyone uh, in israel or we're actually in, in discussions with people at the moment really yeah like ah like local local, local people okay. both who want to set up something and maybe who can fund it as well because mm -hmm. you know all these israel things need Palestine funding or just israel i don't actually know the details mm. sorry um, okay so it all sounds really important and really lovely but i will ask <laughs> i'll ask a bit of a pessimistic question oh please yeah, oh, yeah. Ooh, pessimistic yeah, just a little bit what a surprise and yeah, that okay. would be let's go you are incubating these future political leaders you have your organization and then the sister company 
And you've mentioned these really large networks, funders, Mm. people who have wonderful resumes and jobs. How would you fight off the label of, oh, this is just more elite people? Yeah. You know, and this is like a really big thing in the world today where the disconnect stems from not being able to recognize yourself in in your your politicians. But then something happens when maybe it is someone who's like, you know, um, very grassroots type of individual. And then they do get in these positions and then they rub shoulders with CEOs and the Davos crowd. Mm. And then it's like, then that label can never be shaken off of them. So how does it, how do you avoid the elitism label? Yeah, I think it, it, well, first of all, most of the organizations that we researched when we did our report really sort of wonderfully had a focus on including in their cohorts people from underrepresented groups. And the biggest one was women, which sucks that in most places women are still underrepresented in politics, but they are. But then you have all these other intersectionalities as well, um, depending on on where you are. So, um, you know, there's organisations focused on First Nations people or people with disabilities or whatever it might be. Um, so I think PLIs, these political leadership incubators, they are really serving this purpose of trying to make the funnel or the pipeline of people going to politics bigger and more diverse by being quite open themselves. And that's to do with who they have on their teams. So having really diverse teams that work there, that facilitate the sessions, that teach, that come and speak. So it's kind of, you know, you're walking the walk as well as saying we should all be more or politics should be more diverse. And then I think it comes with like a a tipping point. You know, we have to get as many people from different backgrounds as possible into politics so that they're not the exception and they're not held up as this one example who then I think a lot of criticism towards people who maybe go into politics and stay in there is, you know, then they kind of sell out or they become elitist themselves. But once you get this critical mass, then it just becomes normalized and it becomes normal. But it's it's a really big concern and it's a really big challenge, I think, for all these organizations, even just to, to your point earlier, even just to reach these people and make them aware that this is a thing that they could do and that exists um, but I think they're coming up with really interesting kind of creative ways of doing that. Um, and it's really top of mind. Like it's one of our kind of core values is that, you know, diversity is not, it's not a nice to have. You just, you just have to do it. And it's how you structure your own organization as a first step. I have to, to ask like a difficult, like hard question. Yeah. Don't you think that the discourse of diversity is actually what makes like this uh, notion of elitism? Because I feel like um, at one point, I mean, it's really, it's regarded to the left, you know, but uh, basically the way I'm coming from a play, I'm coming from a philosophy that I feel like it's a wall, it's a, it's a class uh, mm. thing mm-hmm. and not identity. And, uh, and once, once this discourse shifted to diversity, I mean, you just basically lose and then, and then when you come, I mean, like I know people, and when you're talking to them about like identity, they look at you as like, "Oh, mm. who gives?" That's woke. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. And mm. uh, and uh, I mean, not to say that people not like identities, quote unquote, should be uh, represented, but on the other hand, I feel like 
yeah i don't know i mean like i feel like we should go back to what like to like for how should i put it like for people to understand that if if you want to be able to identify with your leader you should be you know as speaking your language or not yeah so yeah i don't like it's i'm just like curious if like this uh identity or like this diverse terminology is not like the thing that basically uh push everybody like towards the, yeah yeah i th- was I able to uh... kind of no. <laughs> <laughs> I think I get what you mean as in uh, the even the discussion of having diversity yeah. in politics yeah. can be perceived to be exactly. quite liberal yeah. or yeah. exactly woke or and that's kind of off-putting to yeah. some people yeah I think them like, I don't know I feel like the like the majority even I think again though it comes back to just framing it as or and and it really genuinely is being the case that you want people who will serve your interests mm. as a citizen in politics. And if that's a rural farmer, if that's someone, you know, from a lower socioeconomic mm. group or someone who hasn't gone to university, then you want people like you to be making the decisions that affect you and you, the people around you. And so either you step up and go into politics as one of those people or, Or you kind of join in the discussion and and sort of realize that yeah we need we need all these different kinds of people mm-hmm. so I don't think it's necessarily about saying that we need all different identities in politics although that's that's true I think uh, it really just comes down to who's going to make the best policy for you as a person in your full identity as whatever it might be and we all have different identities I guess and depending on the situation so you actually help people with uh, figuring out their policies or it's just like the tools the tools yeah we we sort of uh, stop before we get to the political stage I guess mm-hmm. you know it's helping you to prepare to get elected and to then be good good hopefully once you're in office mm-hmm. but in terms of what your policies will be we don't we don't really go there again unless it's you know I'm gonna ban all uh, renewable energy infrastructure in my country or I'm gonna dispute the fact that climate change exists we might sort of weigh in there or the academies might I would mm-hmm. say but um beyond that it's yeah it's how to make the policy it's how to communicate the policy mm-hmm. it's how to understand the your political system so that the policy can even get through all the different steps it has to get through so can you I think I know I just gonna say the thing about diversity is it has become a buzzword and for some people there's these initiatives the diversity equity and inclusion and inif- initiatives that people think are just a waste of money and time and um, there's there's just so much backlash against it at the moment the only thing like I would I would say to that is what if all of All politicians were just had just tomorrow they all just became women and there only there were no men how would you feel about that I don't care okay I think I can generally genuinely believe you wouldn't care I think a lot <laughs> of I think a lot of men would be like what where are the men there needs to be men if you went into like a boardroom mm-hmm. like you're doing this giant pitch and you got to pitch the the board the board of directors and everyone in there was like a middle-aged black woman like there's seven of them they're all mm-hmm. middle-aged black women and People would freak out. They'd be like, "Why are they all black women? You mm-hmm. know, what like where's someone who looks like me? And we know a little bit of that can be fact checked by the 
the the reality we live in in the United States now is most people in academia are now women. Most of the students, maybe not necessarily all the, all the professors, but the graduating rates, like it's completely done, done a flip where it's like it's 20, 15 or 20 percent more women than men and less and less men that are coming in to join every day. And men are having huge discussions about it right now, saying like this is not what we want. We were we were there for equity and equality and we want that. Um, but we don't want to not be represented. And I think I think that's a totally fair argument. I think it's fair for like anyone to say like, hey, like people who are like me are not there. Yeah. And I think it's it's really uh unrealistic to think that someone who has a, who's completely different to you can have a proper insight into you and your life and how things are for you to then make policy or to make decisions that help you or benefit you you know like i'm a white almost middle-aged woman i wouldn't presume that i know the lived experience of a black man in the us and if it's a room full of white middle-aged women making decisions about things that impact this guy, then, I mean, how are we going to know what the impact of these things will be on him or how to frame it or what he needs? It's just impossible. Like, as empathetic as you can be, you're never going to be able to do that. But if then it's a room of people from all different backgrounds and ages and all these different things, then you have a much better chance of having at least one person say, yeah, hang on a minute, have have you thought about this potential thing? So I think it's we we sort of have this um, presumption that uh, diversity is good, but if you think about it in that way, you're like, well, yeah, how how are you going to know what someone how someone's going to react or what the impact's going to be when they're completely different to you? It's just it's almost impossible. But I I mean, there's something I learned in the university. I think it's called like. Uh, the veil of ignorance or something like that mm. have you heard about that and which means well. that basically there's a way to figure out decisions if you put yourself uh, in a place where you don't know what you are or who like before you were born for example oh, and right. that you know so that's cool yeah so and then and then you can actually look at the like a decision and say okay i don't know what i am mm. i don't know that i'm a white man uh Middle age, yeah, yeah. I don't know, forty-five. I just celebrated my birthday. Oh, happy birthday! Yeah, thanks. Uh, so yeah, you know, like I mean, I'm not really sure that, uh, and also on a different perspective, th- this identity uh, it, it became so uh, superficial, you know, in a sense that you you can you know, for example, today uh, you have. Um, I don't know, like how should you describe the vice president of the st- of the United States as like a woman, like a woman of color? Yeah, Asian uh, and black. Yeah, yeah. and and sh- and like judging her policies, she's awful, you know. Mm. So I mean, but on the other hand, nobody nobody checks these things, you know. Like it's just like you just like you see the picture, you see the color, you see, and that's it. I mean, that, that's enough. So in a sense, I don't. know, It's I feel like it's um, limiting us in in a sense. Well, I don't think you should elect someone just because they're diverse they also yeah. have to be good at yeah but job. this is where we are at the moment that's the thing i don't think i mean judging by how lacking in diversity most parliaments are i don't think we're quite there yet because they're still pretty unrepresentative. i think it catches so much media attention mm-hmm. and i think that's also part of the problem is that we tend to sometimes be in silos where we're hearing the same thing over and over mm. again. And I, but I definitely have seen with um, Kamala Harris that 
as a politician, she's genuinely not very liked in mm. the United States. It's it's you know the, the maybe and again maybe it's the, my algorithm and the feed of like crit- critiques that I see. Um, no, she basically. I mean, she lost like the the pre election, huh? like this uh, the midterms. Yeah, the midterms. No, the. When she was running against oh, the, uh, the primaries. Yeah, the primaries. So. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. She, she lost yeah, she, big she, time. Well, yeah. She, she did, but so. I mean, that could... <laughs> and the only reason she was elected by Biden or like by his school is because... He said he was going to have yeah. a black female candidate. So. Or he either said he's going to have a black female candidate or he was going to elect or choose, nominate a black female to the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. And mm. I think people get so caught up when they hear that and they and they really get angry and think oh well what about the qualifications what about merit like this is a meritocracy which like newsflash it's, it's not, not a, it's not a meritocracy but what i would say is do you know how hard it is to be a black female and go to an elite university be- and become a judge become a lawyer become a judge or become in the case of kamala harris um district attorney yeah way harder than for any white guy way way harder because everybody like is already expecting you to be a major fuck up. But I think people here is just a black female. We're going to have a black female on the Supreme Court. And they think that's why she was elected. When if you look at that woman who was nominated to the Supreme Court, she has had so, so much of a longer resume than anybody else on the court. And people don't know that. They just think, oh, she was just chosen because she's a black female. If you're a black woman in any kind of like leadership position, you are the most qualified person in the room because you're not allowed to be in the Mm. room if you're not the most qualified. That's so true. And I had this when I was tour guiding. I'm not a black woman, so I cannot pretend to know the lived experience of of that. But just as a woman, and like when I started tour guiding, I was somewhat younger. Um, You would see particularly with like older guys when you stood up and said, okay, you're my group and started to introduce yourself. You could just see them being really skeptical. Like what's this young white chick from Australia going to teach me about you know, the Second World War or whatever it is about Berlin. And I, f- I knew, I felt I had to work so much harder to gain their kind of respect or their attention even because of that. Whereas the the male tour guides kind of just rocked up and, you know, started saying their, their spiel. And it was, we were working from this kind of lower level of expectation that we had to then even just get to zero and then once and for me it which is just so ridiculous because it's completely irrelevant to being a tour guide in Berlin as soon as I said that I was a lawyer or I had been a lawyer then you'd get a lot of people being like oh yeah okay great which I'm like <laughs> I, you know it's, I could still be a really shit tour guide if I was a lawyer it's just got nothing to do with it you but could, somehow you, you know you could also be a horrible lawyer you know like you know, well like, yeah you know. I think I was actually <laughs> <laughs> I'm much better ask, tour guide. Uh, I, in the party where we met, I saw you have a, a kid. Yeah. You want to talk about uh, a little bit? I do. I, the name of your baby was Isabel, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, mm. no, she didn't get a tattoo of a cloud on her. On her. Yeah, she also got tattooed. Oh, really? No. <laughs> but that was uh, an eye-opening experience for her to watch you get oh, a tattoo. Really? Yeah. What did you say? She was fascinating. It? Uh, she was fasc- she was fascinated. Um, not she didn't actually say anything about it. She stopped talking since. Yeah, she's just <laughs> stared at the wall since then. Yeah, how did like I? He hadn't met Lean Olaf before. I just brought him to the party. And yeah, the first time you ever met them, you got a tattoo. Yeah, I was like, oh, rock on. a matching like, tattoo, no less. Yes, with someone else at the party. Yes. Yeah, that you'd never met before. 
<laughs> and haven't seen since. <laughs> You'll always be connected, though. Definitely. Yeah. Also on Instagram. Oh, of course. So yeah. where you came here, you were sing you were single, or uh... I actually moved here with uh, my boyfriend mm -hmm. at the time. Sorry, from yeah. Australia. Um, Shocking. So I know what. Mike just fell out of a chair. Um, yes, okay. but that is not. That's not the father of my child, who I just married like two weeks ago. Oh, congratulations! Yeah, I remember at the, yeah. the party you were saying you're about to get married. We went. He was the, your husband hitched. is the one who suggested the cloud, right? Or the, he said he, no. That was one of our one at Paul, one of our other friends. Okay. I think. Yeah. Right. No. What, like, why did so, you get married? I mean, mainly the text benefits. No, I no, have no. To say. That's legit, I mean, um, why would you yeah. do such a thing? Why would you? Really no, I was life? married. You know, yeah. I did this. I mean, yeah, right. I also did it for the for the passport, basically. Oh, so, yeah, right. So now that so you're, this is your is this your first marriage? It is my first marriage. Yeah, okay. it's it not something I've ever been that into or interested in or worried about. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Where did you get married? In we went to, we went to Copenhagen. Oh, it was so cool! And because the day we got married just happened to be um, Hans Christian Andersen's birthday, so they celebrate Hans Christian Andersen Day. We our celebrant was a Hans Christian Andersen impersonator. So this guy in sort of nineteenth century garb rocked up into the room and pretended to be Hans Christian Andersen and. Did the marriage ceremony and it was hilarious. It, your partner is Danish? Nope. He's But from I England. I think it's mm. very easy to get married in uh, Denmark. Yeah. yeah. It's like the Las Vegas of Europe. I see. No, I got married in Cyprus. Oh, oh okay. yeah. there you go. Okay. Was And because it was yeah, because, easy? Uh, uh, easy? Yeah, it was quite easy. I yeah. mean, I did it while I, while I was still living in, in Israel, in Tel Aviv. And uh, you, you can... Because in Israel, I don't know, maybe you know it. In Israel, there's only one way to get married, and that's the religious way. Oh, I didn't know that. And if you would like to avoid that, you can only do it outside of the country. So do you have like uh, wow. travel agencies where actually make like a tour, like a pack for like yeah, or like weekend and you get married and then you go back. Yeah, right. And yeah. Cyprus is a uh, the main. Is one. Yeah, also Prague. Oh yeah. And uh, I think maybe also Copenhagen. Yeah, yeah, they seem to have like a whole industry yeah. around it. So it was just you two and your daughter? That was it? No, we 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 thought it would be, but then we kind of put it in like a WhatsApp group. Like, we're going to Copenhagen this weekend. If anyone wants to join, feel free. And then we ended up having like 15 people. And oh, nice. it was a really awesome weekend. It was sunny, which apparently never happens in Copenhagen. You had like, you were partying? Yeah. Well, I mean, as much as you can with the three-year-olds. Um, and then we all... We're supposed to fly home Sunday night mm -hmm. and uh, Neil, my now husband, feels so weird to say that word, uh, he was supposed to start a new job on the Monday and our daughter Isabel was starting a new Kita. Mm -hmm. It was like all these things happening at the same time and then our flight got cancelled oh. and so we had to stay an extra night and it all just ended up in a bit of a um, anticlimactic kind of shit show. But, But you're married. It was great. Definitely. I mean. Yeah. It was worth it, I think. It's official. <laughs> okay, since this is the Being Berlin podcast, most of the time, not every conversation, but most conversations I try to ask, what's the big hoopla about Berlin for you? <laughs> what is it? What is it that because you came to the city, <laughs> you've been here for so long. Uh, yeah. And well, it's 12 years a long time, I think it is. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 
Yeah, I feels mean, like a long time. Okay, it does feel like a long time. Okay, yeah. For some people, twelve years like feels like an afternoon. Uh, but okay, so <laughs> you, what what is it about the city that makes you want to stay here? Yeah. Why do you love it, or do you? <laughs> I've a. Uh, I think, like most people, I have a love hate relationship with this place. But at least it's like passionate in that sense. You know, I have strong feelings for Berlin one way or the other and usually I hate it in like early February when it's grey and everyone is fucking miserable um and I just question my life choices and why am I doing this to myself um it's just it's just free it's it's freedom I think is why I love it and and just kind of weird possibility which I mean I'm from Australia so you know great life, high standard of living, all these wonderful things, but it feels a little bit like predictable, I would say. In Australia? Yeah. Yeah? I mean, yeah. I mean, apart from, you know, the weather. Because you have a path, like you mean in your life. You have a path, yeah, and I definitely had a path. You Mm -hmm. know, I went to school and then I went to university and then I became a lawyer and I Mm -hmm. think if I'd continued on that path, it would have been, I can see that path already and and I just didn't want to do that, which Mm -hmm. is why... I left and came to Berlin originally just for a year to, I don't know, clear my head and figure out what I was going to do with myself. Do you think it's because of Berlin or because you're an immigrant that you kind of like went off your path? Because I feel the same. Mm. Um, I think you need the the space and the environment Mm. to be able to do it, though. I don't think I could have gone to London and had the same kind of... 180 or mm-hmm. a completely different lifestyle because I would have had to just work to pay extortionate rent and things like that. Yeah. Um, it's also never sunny though. So It's never sunny. It's probably about a bomb. Yeah, I don't know how people do it. I love to visit London, but I don't know how people live there. And if you had moved there, you could have continued your law practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which might have sucked. You might have succumbed. Into, you might have succumbed. <laughs> You might yeah, have been like, oh, exactly. yeah, like, I can be a lawyer here because exactly. we're, we're on the same co- uh, common law. So, totally. I would have because that's like this because I I think I'm not a very risk-taking person. I'm quite, you know, it takes me like a week to book a flight because I'm always checking the options and is this the right one and I'm really indecisive in that sense. But I've made some kind of big decisions in my life like moving to the other Mm -hmm. side of the world to Berlin Um, and I'm so thankful that I did that. But, yeah, it's like – it was it was kind of an easy choice, I think, because it's just free and open. And you, when I came here, I don't know what it's like for people now, actually. You could come here and kind of do or be whatever you wanted mm-hmm. to be, and that was totally fine. Um, so I became a tour guide, and I never for one minute felt like, oh, I'm a failure, and, you know, I've spent all these years at university, and here I am, a tour guide or whatever. And I met lots of people doing lots of different things mm-hmm. and, you know, either in the art scene or in music or working in an office as well, you know, and that was all just completely fine and doable and acceptable and everyone like mixed and mingled. And then uh, I think I've also lived like many lives or many versions of Berlin and Mm -hmm. it's always kind of come through. Why? Because newcomer, Yeah, you know, I... Yeah, I rocked Not up. Uh, yeah. Well, I rocked up not very not single, and then I became yeah, single yeah, quite funny. quickly. 
Um, no, they they say that Berlin purges itself and that everyone in Berlin purges themselves. So that there are new versions of you that come and yeah. there's always a new Berlin is like a snapshot. It's very fleeting in the middle of whenever you're here that the Berlin you're living in now is not going to be around for very long. It's always been that way. And like hmm. this is like been the case for its conception. It's a very real thing in Berlin for like it to just constantly be in flux. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think you can say this about life. I, I don't think you can say so that about other cities in the same way you can say it about Berlin. I see. What do you think about like us being the, uh, both of us on this podcast tonight? <laughs> I, I really, normally it's just me talking yeah. to the guest. Yeah. No, I really liked it. I was yeah. really excited for it. Why? Do you want me to tell you that I hated it? No, no, I'm just curious. <laughs> We're never doing this ever again. <laughs> no, no, I'm just curious. It was really cool. Because I'm usually not on the... Like, what do you usually do? Just sit there? I, I never come. Oh, I just, right. yeah. Oh, I'm honored. <laughs> uh, All right. I th- yeah. I think uh, I think we're going to end it there. I could talk okay. to you for much longer, but it was really wonderful thank you. And, and, nice. and delightful. So thank you so much for coming in, Kim. Thank and you. And where can people go to check out Apolitical? They can go to the internet um, to find us. So the internet. The, inter- the interwebs. Um, so apolitical.foundation is our website. Apolitical. Do I need to spell? No, no, no. no, 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 no I'll, I'll put it in the Just description. Check, awesome. Check we're on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. We're on probably Facebook. Um, I don't know why. We are you are, on TikTok? No, but we have that as a goal. We're all a bit okay. too old for it. And uh, then on Instagram. You need, you need to get on TikTok. TikTok is the... Is the I, know. Mm. I was on TikTok for like five minutes I'll and give then you a deleted tutorial. it. I'll give you a tutorial. I'll teach you how to use it and then you'll be all about it. I'll be addicted though. That's the problem. Yeah, that's a big problem. Yeah. Worst things to do. <laughs> all right, I'll, we'll end Thanks. it there. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> That's the end of today's podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to give Being Berlin a follow on Instagram at beingberlinpod. We'd love to hear from you and talk all things Berlin and Berliners. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Bands, for giving us the opportunity to bring a piece of Berlin to listeners. If you're a hobbyist musician and want to join a rock band with real rehearsals, Bands is a way to meet fellow hobbyists, improve your skills, and have fun. Register at bandsberlin.com and bring back music to your lives.